<laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Remembering and Reenchanting podcast. My name is Sarah Jolina Wolcott, and I am your hostess on this sacred learning journey of unraveling, unveiling, and becoming more fully alive at the end of the world as we know it. In this podcast, we offer up to you, dear listener, three forms of episodes to support your journey of remembering and re-enchanting. First, conversations with amazing people. Second, storytelling. And third, myth-casting. In this episode, we're going to bring you a conversation between myself another amazing, fascinating leader in the areas of remembering and re-enchanting. Hello, and welcome to the Remembering and Re-enchanting podcast. My name is Sarah Jelena Wolcott, and today I am delighted to be joined in conversation with Nina Simons. She recently wrote a book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, A Woman Listens for Leadership. And it's a book that really arises from decades of work in the work of interconnecting and weaving the connective tissue between people and ideas and resources, much of which has been exemplified by her role as a facilitator, a convener, and a learner from hundreds of some of the brightest and most remarkable people in service to our planet to a greater future of sustainability, and to the bringing about of a spiritual and cultural shift. She's probably best known, or at least the way that I know her, is through her work at the, as a co-founder of Bioneers, a gathering at the heart of nature. And I just want to say first what a complete honor it is to have you in conversation today, Nina. You have been, your work and the work that you had done has had so many ripple effects that I have experienced in my life and that I know other people have been touched by. So such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Sarah. I think that's the most soulful introduction I've ever, ever had. I loved how you, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) I'm really honored. (laughs) I want to meet this person. (laughs) Um, You know, it's, it's this work of helping to create connective tissue in a world that has been so siloized, so siloed, siloed, siloized. <laughs> um, that That is work that I think requires um, really the willingness to be on one's own leading edge because one cannot necessarily see very far in the darkness. It's a, it's a work I think of often as, um, as, um, being a membrane and but to be a membrane means you can't always see what you're doing before you do it Mm. it's and i'm kind of curious like for you how do you how does how do you experience the dance between visioning and 
emergence? Hmm. Oh, what a great question. Um, well, in my inner world, Sarah, what I experience is that something happens or I hear an idea and it feels as though it won't let me go. Um, and I find myself returning to visit that idea or that sensation over and over again. And um, to the point where I can no longer ignore its guidance. Um, so I have an inner experience of it that's like that. Um, it's sort of, I also imagine my learning vehicle sometimes as a seedbed, as like a planting garden. And there are seeds that drop into it that just want to live there. And I experience them as friendly, as fecund, and as calling me toward, toward uh, emergence. Mm. Mm -hmm. When you are describing that, especially the first, the first sort of set of um, ideas around that sense of something kind of burying within you, and nudging you, and 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 you can't ignore it. Um, the image is of a of a, almost like a thorn, but not necessarily a painful thorn, but it's something you can't ignore. It's almost identical to uh, the way that my Quaker elders describe leadings. When we talk about having leadings of the of this Holy Spirit, we talk about this experience. Like you, sometimes you just have an idea, but you can lay an idea down. But if you have a leading, you can't lay it down. Mm -hmm. And it grows in you and it festers in you. And and you are awake at night thinking about it sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so to recognize a leading is a key piece of discernment, which is one of the things you, you talk about in this book is how do we discern our calling and our process. And you have birthed many, many um, events, gatherings, workshops, facilitated processes um, to bring, to convene people, to bring people together across different ideas. And I'm wondering, like, when you when you feel that inkling, is it how does that live within you, and how do you how do you help to bring that into how do you go from that nudge? And I want maybe perhaps it's it's best done if you could tell us like one like one example of a time when you had that um, spark, and then you brought that into the world. Hmm. How you experience that? How, how does it actually come come out? Well, as you ask this, I am reflecting on two or three different examples, and uh, and I think that let me let me see if I should select one or. Um, <laughs> The very either first, one's fine, yeah. Well, I think I'm going to do two. Okay. The very first time I ever convened women, mm. um, I was at a convening 
that was a convening of people to support Julia Butterfly Hill, who had recently come down from her tree sit, her two year tree sit in a redwood tree and was looking for guidance and had had gathered this group to help give her guidance. And I had heard recently before that, uh, Diane Wilson, an activist on the Texas Gulf Coast, paraphrase a George Bernard Shaw quote, where she said, uh, a reasonable woman adapts to the world and an unreasonable woman makes the world adapt to her. So I encourage you all to be unreasonable because the earth really needs us now. Mm. And that was a leading, a calling that when I heard it landed in me in a big way. And so I had begun dreaming about a gathering that in my heart mind, I was calling unreasonable women for the earth. And uh, I had never done anything like that before. And I was sort of starting to imagine it as if I was going to make a soup. And I was thinking about which were the women that were the key ingredients to the soup and how would it need to be seasoned and sparked in order to be most mm, delicious. And, and I was sharing a room at this retreat with a friend. And when I told her about my dream, she said, Oh, I have a retreat site reserved. I'll give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> and we wound up convening 34 women at the most gorgeous retreat site that doesn't exist anymore with hot soaking pools and it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And it was a very exciting emergence for me because I dreamt and created the whole thing. And with 34 very diverse women leaders, uh, any illusion anyone had of control went out the window immediately. And um, it was quite, quite fantastic. But the other one that occurred to me as I was listening to you Sarah is um, there was a time when I was feeling really called to immerse myself more deeply in learning about racial equity. Mm. And I had been working with groups of women and two women had come to that one retreat who called each other comadres. And as I got to know them, they were both of uh, indigenous Mexican descent. And they explained that their relationship was one of deep lifelong commitment that they had promised each other that for the rest of their lives, they would, they would show up for each other. And mm -hmm. if one died, the other would take care of the children. And that that they had each other's backs. And I thought, oh, I want to understand how to create beloved community mm. among very diverse women. Mm. 
to see whether we can foster and engender that kind of relationship among women who are not born into indigenous lineages. Mm-hmm. And I convened a group that I called Comadres, and it was really to address my own yearning to learn. And it was, uh, it was a retreat that was very deep and very painful because we had eruptions that we were unable to reconcile while we were there, and some of which have been unable to reconcile even since. Mm. But um, I think in many ways, the transition that you're asking about from the dream into emergence is motivated largely by my own heart's desire to learn something for myself. And I feel like it's a f- kind of a, a funny secret that I've experienced that when I create a situation that helps respond to my own yearning, it creates medicine for other people. Mm. 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 There's a couple, there's several things you said there I just want to underline. Um, One, at first, there's a first, the thing you said about um, that beautiful story of you, you spoke something and someone responded with an offer. Um, those again in the Quaker tradition we talk about as way opening. Mm-hmm. And it usually happens from something outside of ourselves, of another person or an opportunity, but like the 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 window or the door opens and it enables this ministry, this this um leading within you to go out into the world. Um and I also just want to acknowledge that, you know, the to have a dream and to bring it into emergence, especially a dream that involves other people, where other people are, you know, giving you time or energy or resources to come together. That also takes a certain type of um, the capacity to believe in what you're doing, um, to trust it, and the audacity to ask, and and the, a certain skill set, right? Certain skills to to both believe in what you're doing and to to actually help retreats or gatherings happen. It doesn't come from nothing. So that there's a there's some skill involved in this <laughs> in this process of of convening, um, which is and of trying to bring this connective tissue together. And the second story, and I really appreciate you your honesty around this because I think that's so important. Um, of trying to, and I, I love this this desire to, because it just it speaks volumes really that the desire, the yearning, the use of the word yearning there, to create a space where non-indigenous folks can start to rekindle some of what we see in it some of the depth of community support and reliable reliance and mutual support, mutual aid that goes so much beyond um, I, the word, even the phrase mutual aid these days feels 
Uh, like it's just, it's just a placeholder for the depth of commitment um, and, and the willingness to, to kind of first for women to act as sisters um, in a way that many of us have never experienced um, having sisters that act that way uh, between and with one another. And what I, what I hear in that yearning is, is a yearning to heal the brokenness of our culture and particularly the brokenness between women um, and the, the, the ways in which the circles of trust of within the sisterhood have been broken um, and are continuing to break. It's not past tense. <laughs> um, and, and also in that, that this yearning and this uh, trust that in your own yearning can come medicine for others is also quite powerful. And so this leads to this um, potential title that uh, you were mentioning um, before our call of someone once gave to you, which is to describe your work as a culture doctor. And this yearning that comes from within that can also support the healing that we all need in our culture. And I'm wondering if you can say something about what does it mean for you now to, to, to enact, however imperfectly, this role of being the culture doctor? <sighs> well, I'm feeling really deeply humbled by it at this moment. Mm. Mm. Um, when the brokenness all around us is so uh, exaggerated and apparent and violent and um, and the loss is so great. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm finding in myself that hmm, after many, many years of focusing on working with women, I'm really feeling drawn now to how to help rebalance the masculine and feminine within mm -hmm. us all. Um, that regardless of what gendered body we may be born into, we all have masculine and feminine and that ancient symbology of the twinning of the Haudenosaunee and the yin-yang of the Chinese um, is a model for wholeness that uh, continues to deepen in meaning for me as I age. Um, and You know, Sarah, I, I think this is so congruent with much of your work that I'm finding myself <clears throat> um, noticing various lineages and wanting to really help connect past to future vision. Um, because as I see it, it's part of the dysfunction and dis-ease of this culture that we've inherited that's been so 
deformed by systems of patriarchy and capitalism and colonialism and racism um, that I love finding resources from the past that uh, guide me towards what's needed to help heal our culture. And some of that, for me, you know, some of it feels like it comes from my DNA as a woman of Ashkenazi Jewish lineage. Um, as science has shown now that epigenetic trauma and if trauma travels, then so does memory um, through the DNA. Um, some of it is through my experience as a woman because uh, like you, well, I don't know if this is like you, but for myself, when I learned about the burning times and researched it, um, I felt like it was one of the root causes of the, of the uh, pain and violence and dysfunction and imbalance that we've inherited. And so for me, my first window into cultural healing was the understanding that because of my lived experience as a woman, it gave me an empathic window into the experience of marginalized peoples. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are a lot of clues that I'm gathering right now. I feel like I'm in a transitional moment in my life and I'm, I'm sort of harvesting clues that I have gathered about what's needed to walk into this time in a, in a way that offers healing. And, um, <laughs> and some of it has to do with what I've learned so beautifully from my friend and mentor, Terry Tempest Williams, um, that we need to be dancing with apparent contradictions, that um, there is no room for binaries in the world we're living in. It's far too complex for that. And, uh, and that I want to cultivate in myself um, a combination of a thin skin and a thick skin, mm. a thin skin so that I can continue to feel the pain of and the loss of nature and species and peoples mm. and cultures um, and a thick skin so that I can continue to learn about and understand the conditioning of white supremacy that runs so deep within me that it's often hard for me to see and that I am continually seeking to peel away layers of. So in many ways, for me, the work of cultural healing or being a culture doctor starts with myself and with peeling away so many layers of culture that I have absorbed without ever consciously intending to. Mm. 
You know what I actually what I actually hear there is sensitivity. Right? It's the capacity to be sensitive to the myriad ways in which we are ourselves impacted, but but to to tease out from the background and the foreground, to tease out the the disruption, the the things that cause violence, because so much of what causes violence are things that we have become accustomed to. Mm-hmm. So to even see the brokenness, like we think the brokenness is one thing, and then we, after a while, like, oh, no, no, it's actually something else. And to be able to look and work with history as part of, under, history helps us see more clearly that which is broken within ourselves and others in our world. Um, and it also helps us see wholeness. Um, it's interesting. It, uh, I remember when I first learned about the burning times when I was a, a young woman, I was, a, I guess, a young teenager. Um, I didn't, I saw it. I saw it as very important. I recognized it as like shaping. I think I recognize it as influencing the, the, the broken sisterhood, right? The sense of the sisterhood being broken. I did not, um, like I now see it as much more important than I did then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like now, now looking back, I, well, that's because I've connected it with colonization much more clearly and like, like made the links between what happened in Europe or what happened in other parts of the world and how that led to climate change. Um, so those, those links are much more clear to me, but, um, and so like, as we get to as our analysis of the problem um, grows our capacity to understand the, I don't even want to say the word solution, but our capacity to understand the remedy mm. increases. Mm. Does that resonate? It does. And also what I hear in your words is the connection between the deeply personal and embodied learning and mm-hmm. the transpersonal. Yep. Because yep. it's, you know, um, it's both at once. And I think that that's an essential aspect of reclaiming the feminine. Because mm-hmm. I think in many ways, the experience of the personal has been slighted in our culture or degraded um, when in fact it's value to healing and creating connective tissue is immense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's an irony, right? That we have such an individualistic culture and yet the personhood is very disvalued. Right. Right. It's odd. (laughs) oh one of many many oddities (laughs) (laughs) and and i really you know i really just want to say how much i appreciate you um as someone like i mean i think so much of your your you know in pioneers you have the every woman's leadership um program and you have many other you've convened i don't know if you've ever counted how many you've convened um you know uh, groups of women <laughs> um, and really, you know, focused on bringing women together. And I appreciate you uh, 
I think you are someone who's often on the cutting edge of things. And I have felt in recent years, like, um, you know, women's work is incredibly important. Women gathering together as women is incredibly important. Don't want to discount any of that. Um, and to heal the sacred masculine and to heal the sacred feminine is something that we all have to do within ourselves, regardless of whatever our gender may or may not be, or whatever fluidness there might be. Yes. And, yeah. and so I'm super curious, like as someone <laughs> who has been doing so much convening women, what helped or what has been prompting um, you to, to think less in terms of women per se, and more in terms of the, the balance? Um, well, I think meeting and witnessing several men who are really reaching for that healing and that balance in themselves, recognizing that on a societal level, mobilizing women is not enough. <laughs> we need the help of male allies. Um, and I still believe really down to my core that women are women and the feminine, um, which for me means mother life, um, are our greatest hope for shifting our course. Um, mm -hmm. so convening women is still really important to me. And, mm -hmm. um, and I was just going to appreciate Sarah that as I've been learning about you, one of the things that I admire in your work is that you draw from many different directions and mm -hmm. many different modalities and, um, sources as do I, you know, mm -hmm. I think that part of what's this life is asking from us is to be sort of flexible and adaptive in where we receive how we weave together the guidance for how to live now and i hear that in your work very much um, from your quaker tradition from from your work with indigenous peoples um, and and with all kinds of people. So I just wanted to appreciate that. And also to say, as I listen to you and the connections that you drew um, with the burning times and colonization, um, it strikes me that you are also a weaver and an uh, emerge, uh, a cultivator of connective tissue. And mm -hmm. that that's really an important, I mean, to me, <laughs> I sometimes smilingly refer to myself as spider woman because I love to weave things and people mm -hmm. and ideas mm -hmm. so much. Mm -hmm. And I see that in you as well. And it's a, mm. it's a beautiful thing. Mm. Well, the work of healing is weaving, right? It's, yeah. it's a combination of unraveling. You often have to um, do a fair amount of unraveling. Mm. <laughs> And tearing the body further apart in order to get out the thing that's inside of it. But of also enabling, when I talk about remembering, um, 
it is very much that somatic experience of the the human earth body coming back together again it is the to to remember is to um is to rejoin like literally <laughs> and to let that have a multiple temporal dimension it's happening the present it's happening in the past it's happening the future that's in the present and in the past it's not um there is both linearity and circularity you know that we can but that the process of remembering which is you know a process of um both both developing and returning at the same time both going forward and and deepening and retrieving it's very multi-dimensional we can't we can't just have a singular way of doing it and i and i hear that in what you're just saying about um both honoring the role of women and acknowledging the importance of balancing the sacred masculine and sacred feminine with all peoples um and like that's you know it's kind of that more it's not just a one thing right it's that kind of fluidness mm-hmm. that enables adapt adaptability and flexibility over time mm-hmm. and in different contexts Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a both and. <laughs> a lot of both ands in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. And may there be more all the time. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. You know, in this in this work of of weaving and and bridging and bringing different people together to support that process. Um, to support people in going outside of their own box, whatever that box might be, or looking beyond their their horizon, which for all of us is inherently limited. Um, I'm really curious because you've been you've been doing this for for so many decades. Do you think that that skill, the skill of convening well, <laughs> and of weaving, do you think that skill can be taught? Uh, yes. Absolutely. And I think it is probably more readily learned by some than by others. Mm-hmm. I think that it, it requires um, an orientation towards what I call relational intelligence mm-hmm. and uh, practice of leading from the heart and mm-hmm. of good partnership skills. Um, but yes, absolutely, I think it can be taught. In fact, mm-hmm. it's something that, as my beloved partner Kenny and I are both aging, we're sort of consciously working to transmit uh, much of what we've learned to others within our organization mm. so that our roles can change. How are you thinking about this process of um having cultivated an organization for multiple decades. <laughs> How are you thinking about this process of kind of going into a, of, of leaving it in the hands of others? What is this I may ask? Because I feel like this is, this is something that many people are beginning to do. Um, yeah. That many in the boomer generation are, you know, at a place now where it's time to step down and to enable other leadership to rise to the fore and it can be really hard. And I think some some organizations are more skillful at it than others. I'm just 
What are you learning about the process of stepping aside with grace and still maintaining the core values? Well, I think, you know, first of all, for both of us, this organization is like our child. Um, so we, we don't honestly think of leaving it. We think mm-hmm. of stepping back from the roles that we've had so that others can fill those spaces. And honestly, Sarah, we've made some terrible mistakes in the past. I mean, really bad, um, particularly in uh, hiring and choosing leaders who um, we thought were different than they wound up being. But, um, But I think, I mean, I think it helps for us to consider it as a gradual process. Mm-hmm. and not and not a hard stop neither of us is interested in retiring per se we just want to shift our roles and you know and be sensitive to um the changing world and how the organization reflects the world it's serving um so i think we're we're practicing tremendous discernment mm-hmm. about who our leadership team are and we're also learning a lot from witnessing the whole field of nonprofit world where it's become apparent that having one executive director is probably a recipe for failure <laughs> and for burnout and mm-hmm. that it's not a job that any one person can do sustainably or well and so we are cultivating a leadership team mm-hmm. um, and and that team is really practicing um, the values that we've sought to uh, imbue the organization with and and um, so I guess carefully, consciously, and slowly, gradually is how we're doing it. With no, the support. family metaphor there is really interesting, right? Because it's like the the metaphor, like the the as the parent of an adult child is still the parent of the adult child. There's still that relationship; it doesn't completely disappear. But the role the adult parent plays to the adult child is extraordinarily different, especially as that child has their children, or as that child takes on you know different levels of household responsibility. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. I feel that I feel the 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 difficulty of some of the discernment when you say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to acknowledging that because I think we talk about transitions like, and I it just sounds the word just the word transition sounds like smooth. <laughs> it's like <Right>. no. <laughs> well, if one's very, very lucky. <laughs> if one's very, very lucky, right? <laughs> well, one thing that, like, just organizationally, that I think you guys have done beautifully is, um, you know, the growth of the indigeneity program led by Alexis Bunton and others has been um, such a tremendous blessing um, to the whole space and to to pioneers and to to many indigenous peoples who've been able to come through there and do their own work um and that's been really important i'm I'm wondering like you know as as two white co-founders um 
this is not something we we always see. There's lots of lots of organizations <laughs> where the ability to grow within a a, a white founded organization, a indigenous, especially indigenous, but also just generally BIPOC um, orientated uh, safe space is something that frequently doesn't has not happened. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that you've can share with people about your what you've learned. Um, not just the importance of doing it, but like what has enabled that to happen mm. from your well, side? <clears throat> from our side, yes. Um, you know, from the very beginning of Kenny's vision, it has always had indigenous worldviews and wisdom at its heart, pioneers. Mm. And so, you know, I... I know that as I reflect back to the very beginnings, I remember hearing um, indigenous people speak and my mouth kind of dropping open with the realization of how much I had to learn mm. about how to be a human being mm. from these people. And we were lucky enough, again, from very, very early on, we had a relationship with John Mohawk who was uh, a scholar from the Haudenosaunee and, um, and prolific author. And we actually did a project with him in the early 90s. And he was really one of my husband's greatest mentors. And he was on our board of directors from, uh, from near the very beginnings on. Um, and so in many ways, the evolution of Bioneers has been guided by Indigenous mentors from its start. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and as you mentioned, the Indigeneity program is co-led by Alexis Bunton, who is amazing, and her co-director, who actually really began it um, with us, with Melissa Nelson. Um, Kara Romero, and Kara is also an extraordinary, gifted and visionary leader and, and art photographer. And, um, and the two of them are such an extraordinary pair. And the vision of what they do is so powerful. And so for us, it just, uh, you know, I think that Kenny and I had a, a really profound personal resonance with indigenous culture um, going back or too early in our lives and and the combination of having such jaw-droppingly skillful leadership show up in the two of them and and also you know learning to walk a line of which we're still learning, and it's not always easy at all, of um, a primary purpose to be of service to Native peoples that that program has. And at the same time, the acute awareness that we're all Indigenous to Mother Earth and that people of every ethnicity have a great deal to learn from Indigenous perspectives and history and worldviews and voices. Um, so walking those two paths at once is uh, delicate and tricky, but um, I wouldn't have it any other way. And that work 
is really one of the greatest honors of my life to help mm. create the conditions for it to blossom um, just feels extraordinary. And it's one of the places where I have the greatest faith in its contribution to the world. Mm. Can you lean into a bit more? What what are some of the conditions? This this because this feels important for other people as well. What are some of the conditions that enable that to happen? That enable a space where indigenous people can support indigenous people. What are the conditions that enable that larger space to emerge from the perspective of you know, settler um, settler founders and, and sure. settler folks? Well, I mean, for one thing, that program since its inception has had a very clear boundary that it's indigenous led, indigenous guided, um, they have full authority over what they do, while at the same time it is nested within uh, the larger organization of Bioneers, which really is there to support its purposes. So mm -hmm. I think that that sovereignty, that full clear authority resting in those co-directors is essential to it. Mm -hmm. and a lot of trust and open communication among us all is mm -hmm. also really helpful because um, we are constantly trying, exploring how to weave those dual purposes together in the best offering offerings we can make. Mm -hmm. um, so... Mm -hmm. You know, so, <laughs> and and as you might imagine, it's complicated. I mean, we are living in a time when uh, Native identity issues are uh, very much mm, up and rather heated, and and so that boundary between how do you serve the needs of Native peoples reclaiming their history, their cultures, their authority, their health, um, and at the same time, serve the larger healing of the world. Um, it's delicate. I don't mm -hmm. know how to say more than that, except mm -hmm. that, um, you know, my own personal belief, Sarah, has come to be that Native peoples and Native women in particular, but Native peoples at large hold the keys to our species survival. Mm. And, and that therefore, you know, between traditional ecological knowledge, worldview, um, cosmology, and instructions on how to be human, um, <laughs> and living in right relationship with all of life, uh, there isn't, you know, there isn't another source that I'm aware of that has as much to offer and also as much healing to do. <laughs> and it's a weird, you know, it's, a, it's one of those, how do you dance with apparent contradictions? Well, that's, that's just the truth as I see it. So, 
my my own sense of soul purpose is deeply deeply honored and grateful mm -hmm. that i get to help support this happening in a good way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we i often um talk about dynamic tensions and paradoxes mm -hmm. i hear that in what you're in what you're describing yes and i hear um you know spaciousness right giving um, ensuring that there is space ensuring that there is physical space that there is financial space that there's a space for people for these leaders to be funded um helping to do i'm helping to do the i'm sure that you guys do some of the fundraising for the program helping to ensure the funds are there that the resources are there that the 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 welcoming basket is there when someone arrives <laughs> <laughs> the um the food is there um that there that after so much of things not being there that that there is a space where the things that are needed the basic things are provided well and i think it's important to name that there is freedom there mm -hmm. and profound respect mm -hmm. you know so as i have come to continue to learn the meaning of sovereignty mm. to native peoples um and i know how important both freedom and sovereignty are to me personally mm. um it's clear that that's part of the key ingredients mm -hmm. to helping that happen mm-hmm mm -hmm. I'm reminded um, that when, when the Europeans, particularly the French and the English, came to um, the eastern seaboard of what we now call the United States, and as they traveled, the missionaries would frequently write back and say, we have never encountered a people with so much freedom. Mm. And it was an insult it was it was it was uh it was like a, how how could they how could they have so much freedom and um and how could they because they they would say they believe that everyone should be free and that a woman can divorce her or can separate from her husband and that you know all these things can happen and it was such a condition to which um, they did not they themselves in europe had no such practice hmm. and they had not encountered so much freedom and particularly so much freedom from an overlord so much freedom from a from a higher priest or from a, from a superior like they say the you know the sachems do not have control over their people they they <laughs> and they they were just you know because their people are so free <laughs> and they were all confused <laughs> what is all this freedom what are we doing with all this freedom we don't know how to handle it um and over time, of course, that becomes one of the most uh, beloved values and qualities um, and becomes something that people of the world over uh, are, have because become a value people of the world over strive for. Now, what exactly we mean by freedom is a whole other conversation, but, um, <laughs> um, and yeah, there's a lot of weird history there, but to just like to acknowledge um you know, we, we can't give someone else, we don't give someone else their freedom, but to, 
to recognize it for what it is mm. and to respect it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I would, I, I wanted to read a, uh, something from actually a collection of names from your book. You, in your book, you do a beautiful, um, and you're always sort of going in between some of the lessons from your own personal life and the things you've learned as you've worked with different, particularly different women um, in trying to seek out an understanding of uh, a type of leadership that is based more in the feminine than the math than the kind of stereotypical. I don't even want to call them masculine qualities of leadership, but masculine as defined by the, by a colonized world quality of leadership. So I'm going to name um, some of the leaders that you name as lifting others up. And and I'm going to read them a list of these several women who you talk about with great love and kindness and um, admiration. And I might, my question as I read it is like, as you listen to this now, having, having already, you know, written the book and talked about it many times, (laughs) as, as you listen to these, to the names of these women. Um, what are the qualities of leadership that you that you would like to lift up today that you hear as you think about each person? Because I think one of the qualities about you that I am appreciating is like when you, I don't always hear people talk about leadership, is that when I hear you talk about people, you're very much talking about individual people. You make generalizations, you're, you know, you're looking for patterns, but you relate to each person very much as that person um and you're, you're you're really you love you seem to you seem to be one of those people who loves to um to to find the the beauty within each individual and to honor that beauty um and to lift up their beauty um which is often you know in their work in the world patsy cook from the a Mohawk woman from the Haudenosaunee Six Nations. Lenny Mendoza Strobel, chair of the Department of American Multicultural Studies at Sonoma State University. Julia Butterfly Hill, tree sitter, activist, writer, spiritual guide. Lily Yeh, artist, community gatherer, global healer. Ania Davis, activist, civil rights lawyer. Taish. Kumari Mati Lal, Indo-Caribbean artist and activist, philanthropist, and family member. Ai Jen Poo, organizer of immigrant women workers. Judy Wicks, 
businesswoman, chef, and writer. Alexa Garcia and Naima Pinneman climbing poetry. Spoken word duo. Joanna Macy, eco-spiritual leader, Buddhist scholar. Harry Tempest Williams. Author, spiritual leader. Lorene Skiller, host of a radio show. Ayana Young, host of For the Wild, the radio uh, podcast. And I'll pause there. There's many other women we talk about. <laughs> what a delightful exercise. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know what I was noticing? I mean, you're right. I do really love those women mm. and in their particularities. Mm-hmm. And when I notice as I sense for pattern among them, is that the first thing that comes up is that they're all hyphenates, you know, what (laughs) Hollywood calls hyphenates. They're all women who basically refuse to be pigeonholed in one job description, but who have found really creative and beautiful ways to emerge forms that integrate many parts of themselves. Um, And I had an image as I was listening to you and and sensing into each of them, which is that they're all women who I would describe as community caregivers. For some of them, the community is the world. Um, For some of them, it's much more localized. But I, I saw them as like great owls whose wingspan opened wide to encompass all of those they love and care about and want to offer succor or healing to. Um, that's what they have in common for me as leaders. You know, they... I love it that so many of them are artists or artful and and yet they're also naturalists and organizers and poets and performers and farmers and all kinds of things. Um, And they're women whose paths in life have been led from their spirits and their hearts, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. guided by their spirits and their hearts. Mm-hmm, 
And that's something that you're continually lifting up. You're lifting up the, um, the shifting of the guidance from the head to the heart, from the individual to the collective, from the, uh, from the rational to the dream time, the intuition and the mystery and, um, engaging with that darkness, engaging with that, the dream, the, the, the richness that comes in the dark. Mm. And these are all women who do it. And I, I also heard that the, the storytellers, right. They're all storytellers in different yeah. ways yeah. and they, they do it very differently. There's a diver- tremendous different ways in which they're doing it, but they're all, they're all storytelling. Yes. Um, and they're all, um, they're all working with tradition in different mm. ways, you know, mm-hmm. working with innovating with thinking mm-hmm. about tradition and as, and yeah, and they're all intersectional as they, we say, they're all yeah. bringing together these different pieces and, many and of them, in many ways, yeah. they could all be described as culture doctors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which tells us something about this term culture doctors, right? It tells us yes. something about the the importance of um, the work of working at the intersections, of yes. healing at the intersections, of thinking about the trauma, the rupture, of engaging with repair. Yes. of how do you entail repair after rupture? They're all kind of inquiring into this process of like, if they're knowing the rupture, experiencing the rupture, and then inquiring into the process of stitching together and enabling repair. I had a wonderful, I had a wonderful teacher um, named Donna Markova. And Mm. she said, relationships are all a function of rupture and repair. (laughs) And if you think about it, you know, whether they are familial or friendships or partnerships, we all experience rupture in our relationships. And it's the quality of repair that you do that determines the flexibility and the endurability of the relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When my my partner and I first got together, then very 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 early on in our relationship, she said, "The question is not, you know, like the the question is how are we going? Is not whether or not we're going to hurt each other. We will hurt each other. It's how are we going to be in the process? Like how are we going to be in the process of repair? Yeah, more exactly. or less. Yep." And I remember I was like a little bit flabbergasted. No one had started a relationship by telling me I was going to hurt them. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, like, you know, we just kind of got together. Like, what? <laughs> like, can we, can we have some good moments first? Like, can we like build up some like whole host of positive things that we're building off of? It's <laughs> um, like, no, no, we're going to start, start with the fact that they were going to get it wrong, which has actually been great. It's been a, I feel very lucky mm-hmm. um, to have that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been uh, so, so beautiful. And I feel like we've been able to touch on so many of the important things that you talk about in your book. I find 
it can be very um, um, when we're trying to find patterns, sometimes sometimes we can be abstract and we can be too abstract. And it, and it sounds, you know, the words are just words. And I'm really, uh, I was, and I, I'm very pleased that in this conversation, we've been able to, um, I feel like we've been able to meet from a heart space and, and not, and, and share words, um, but not only sharing words, but also sharing some heart space together. Mm. I do as well, Sarah. Thank you. Mm. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners um, and or kind of just ideas around the, I feel like we're, I've been trying to let us embody a feminine leadership conversation style instead of talking about it <laughs> <laughs> and letting it, letting it emerge instead of planning everything. Um, but I'm just wondering if there's anything that you feel called in this moment to, to share with our listeners about embracing um sacred feminine leadership within their own work, whether that be within organizations or in their writing or artists. We have lots of writers and artists and crafters uh, who, who are listening as well as those who are running organizations and thinking about investments who listen. Well, you know, um, I love the way that you have guided us into a conversation that has touched on many things in this book that I've never spoken about in this way to anybody before. Mm. And I love that. Um, I think, you know, the, the things that I feel called to share would be because of your prompt. I think when we first met, I don't know when it was a month or two ago, you said, consider what you are remembering mm -hmm. and what you are re-enchanting in your life. Mm -hmm. And so as I walked in the woods this morning, I thought about that deeply again. And, um, you know, I feel as though the best thing I know to offer is just my personal lived experience in current time, which is that I'm noticing having spent a lot of time <laughs> rebalancing and reorienting between my head and heart, what I'm noticing now is a, a craving to spend more, to give more attention to my embodied experience and to my Mm. ways of listening for guidance. Mm. Um, I was guided at the very beginning of the pandemic to identify a species to be my mentor through this time. And it was the greatest assignment, you know, and I thought, Oh, well, the first one that came to mind was the crows, of course, because they are so present in my life here. But then I thought, no, that's too easy. I need to listen more. And I wound up being chosen by a plant, 
person that is, as far as I can tell, one of the few that even though I live in a place with a hundred year drought, this plant is proliferating and thriving better than anybody else. And it's called an Apache plume. And if anyone listening were to look it up online, you'd see that it's a very unusual looking plant because it has, it has these seed heads that look like Cindy Lauper's hair. They're sort of puffy pink seed heads. And, um, and so the assignment to witness that plant and study it and learn from it over the last two and a half, three years has been quite amazing. Um, because it's really required me to have a practice of humility, of just of listening with my whole body and not just my ears or my eyes. Um, and of feeling a kinship to it that's rather different than I have felt to the plant world before. So, so I feel like I'm remembering through that practice mm -hmm. and another one that's a ritual with a tree that I do that, that is teaching me gratitude to the land in a way that I have not understood or felt in the ways that I'm feeling it now. Um, and, and as someone who has done a lot of doing in my life, I'm really excited to be heading into a chapter where I'm honoring my desire for listening and moving only at the speed of guidance. Mm -hmm. um, and I would offer that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's lots more in the book, but I don't need to go into it. <laughs> and, and the only other thing that I would offer Sarah is to say that much um, akin to the school that you are nourishing and cultivating, it feels to me like Bioneers is like a West Coast partner and twin. And um, so I want to offer that as a resource that there are amazing indigeneity conversations that you can find on the Bioneers website and a podcast also that's beautiful. And if listeners were to go to bioneers.org slash NCS book, you would find lots of resources and a free download of the introduction to the book. So if people are curious, that's where to go. And thank you, Sarah. I look forward to how our lives and our works may weave together in the time ahead. I love that. We will have all of these um, links and resources available on the podcast notes. Um, and I love that you are, you know, going, going more and more into your, your invitation 
um, both for yourself and for others to go deeper into the relationship with your body and with plants um, and to let the plants themselves become teachers, um, not just talking about plants, <laughs> but to go directly, directly mm. to the living plant themselves and um, to our to our own, to the knowledge in our bodies, the knowledge in earth, um, who is speaking to us in many, many different ways right now. And the divine spark that is moving through and within all creatures that we are connected to. Mm. Um, and that's something that we can, that no matter where you are, um, you are not alone because there are, you know, plants and animals and creatures. It's just being part of this earth is to be in a place of belonging. Aho. Mm. <laughs> and may we all continue to deepen into it. It's the most beautiful feeling I know, I think. It certainly feels to me like it kind of, it's, it's an octave of being in love, right? Mm. Is being in love with mother life. And I used to think that if I shared with people how much I love mother earth, they would think I was crazy. Mm. And um, I'm grateful to have grown into someone who understands that not to be true. Mm. 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 Yeah, I'm grateful that our times are changing. Mm -hmm. yes. And that more and more people are able to express that love, which is, you know, it's erotic. Sometimes it's platonic. It's overwhelming. It's undergirding. It's the ground that we literally the ground we stand upon. Well said. Thank you so much for listening to the Remembering and Reenchanting podcast. If you are enjoying what you are hearing, please subscribe, share, and leave us a review. I am always happy to hear from you, dear listener. To continue finding ways to connect the disconnected, and go deeper on your own journey of remembering and re-enchanting with your communities, your organizations, and your families. I invite you to check out our courses and other community offerings via the Sequoia Summit Bio website. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Though I must admit I spend much more time working with really amazing people than crafting social media. If you want to work with me one-on-one -on -one or bring me to speak at your organization or family office, you can find out more at sarahjelina.com.